Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Oakland County's changing demographics mean changes in politics in the county, and that's going to be on display this November 8th when voters cast ballots in local, state, and national races. We are going to talk with Dennis Darnoy, a Republican consultant, and Nancy Quarles, who chairs the Oakland County Democratic Party, about what they expect. Then we'll meet Donald Taylor, who's the new president of University of Detroit Mercy. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. If you think about parts of our state that are changing demographically and politically, it's hard to come up with some place that's experiencing more change than Oakland County seems to have been for at least the last decade. This was a long-time stronghold for Republicans in this state. And instead, in the last few cycles, we've seen Oakland County go, for instance, for Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. Joe Biden in 2020, and county voters have been supporting Governor Gretchen Whitmer uh, in between those races. And the margins in favor of Democrats over Republicans in Oakland County have been getting larger and larger. It suggests that this change is not maybe temporary, but is about a fundamental shift in who lives there and how they vote. But where will the county go from here, what kinds of measures and candidates will it support in the midterms in just a few weeks and beyond? Few big things happened of late in the Detroit suburbs, with Democrats now a majority on the county's commission. An expanded public transit millage is on the ballot, and Congresswoman Haley Stevens defeated Congressman Andy Levin in the race for the 11th Congressional District's Democratic primary. What else will the county do? What else will voters in the county embrace on November 8th? Will state and congressional races continue to turn blue? What kinds of issues will be prioritized in this changing environment? That's where we want to begin the conversation today with Oakland County and the choices that voters will find on their ballots November 8th. And we've got two great guests to help us sort through all of it. Dennis Darnoy is a Republican political consultant who tracks voter data and joins us every once in a while to talk about politics. Dennis, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Nancy Quarles. She is the chair of the Oakland County Democratic Party. Nancy, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. So uh, I'm going to start here. Oakland County looks really different than it did just 10 or even five years ago. Uh, Let's talk about that shift, uh, where it comes from, and where we think it might be headed. Dennis, I'll start with you. For sure. So, um, you know, back 
probably about 10, 12 years ago, um, you could look at, at Oakland County and say the uh, you know southern east section, uh, the Southfield area where uh, Representative Barles was from and, and represented, that was a very solid Democratic area. Um, and as you made your way north into sort of the Troy and Rochester Hills, Oakland area and into Lake Orion, you know, that, that area used to be um, relatively reliably Republican. Um, what we've seen over the past decade or so is is that area, uh, along with uh, the Novi area, becoming uh, more more purple, more independent, uh, more ticket splitting. So that they were, you know, you know willing, as you said, to uh, vote for Barack Obama, but then turn around and and vote for you know State Senator Mike Bishop. Um, you know, so so those areas right now, the Eastern Oakland County area, again, you know, Oakland Township, Rochester, Rochester Hills, and Troy, um, really are. The, the epicenter of the change and are going to have a, a large determining factor on uh, the elections this upcoming midterm. Hmm. Uh, Nancy, uh, once upon a time, being a Democrat in, in Oakland County was uh, a difficult and sometimes lonely task. Uh, these days, it looks really different. Uh, tell me from the standpoint of the Oakland County Democratic Party, uh, how you're looking now and what you're looking forward to, I guess, uh, in, in November. Yes, uh, I, I remember those days when it was uh, lonely to be a Democrat in <laughs> uh, Oakland County. But uh, uh, as stats, as indications have proven, uh, Democrats are getting a very stronghold. A message is really generating throughout Oakland County. Uh, there was um, the southern portion of Oakland County for many years was so uh, the stronghold of Democrats, but as we're seeing now, it's moving throughout. I think the message, the message to uh, people of uh, concern for what's good for them and a quality of life is, is generating and generating strong. And uh, as Oakland County's demographics change, um, um, the thought, process have uh, began to move in different directions. But the thing I find more so uh, is that uh, the citizens of Oakland County are listening for the last few years to the Democratic message. Hmm. And although you may see some uh, ticket splitting, but uh, the, the message is really beginning to generate stronger. Yeah. Uh, Nancy, I want to start specifically talking about this transit millage, which I think is a great example of something that we wouldn't have seen uh, take place, at least in the way that it is in Oakland County five or 10 years ago. Uh, talk about what this, this millage is and how likely you think it is that uh, Oakland County voters will embrace it. Well, I think the uh, millage will be embraced and and passed. Uh, what the what the millage does this time, uh, as you know, uh, we passed the millage. Gosh, I think it was in ninety, the late nineties, but uh, many of the cities had the opportunity to opt out, mm -hmm. uh, which is an option they do not have this time. The key was as I see it, as this millage allows for access. And what I mean by that, uh, within Oakland County, the citizens who choose to 
move by uh, transit will be able to go to each city hmm. uh, before. Uh, and the one we had, <clears throat> the one that's in place before and the one that passed years ago, you could only stop in the cities that had opted in. Um, the, yeah, there were big gaps the, in the system. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I remember having uh, talked to many of the uh, business owners who literally had to go to a certain spot and pick up their their employees to bring them to their positions and their jobs in Farmington Hills, Nova. That will no longer be. So that is what is going to help out. It's the access and the connection to be able to travel within Oakland County. And also there'll be feeder points to uh, some of the uh, areas outside of the uh, county that uh, people can travel to as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. Dennis, this this millage surprised me uh, when when it popped up. And, and as Nancy says, uh, it, it is about trying to to fill some of the gaps that exist in in public transit now. Talk about from a Republican uh, you know perspective, Brooks Patterson was often seen uh, for years as as the the I guess blockade against uh, you know a, a better more cohesive transit system. Of course, he would he would scream at me if he were if he were standing here and listening to me say that he'd say that he was all in favor uh, of transit. He just didn't want to force people uh, to do it. But but talk about the change that that represents that uh, voters will have this to vote on in just a few weeks. Well, well, certainly Brooks would would talk about local control and, and giving people choices. I, I do think, you know, one of the uh, things that we've seen, um, you know, with, with the new county executive, and, and again, as, as Nancy's mentioned, I think a, a changing in the messaging and the attitude of, of taking a more uh, regional uh, and cooperative approach. Um, it was, you know, highlighted um, in numerous news articles about how certain workers, uh, you know, if they were working in the, the Novi Mall, would literally have to walk a, a mile and a half, two miles to get to their job because there wasn't transit uh, service out there. I, I think Republicans, um, you know, when they when they look at this millage, would probably go back to, again, uh, the the traditional um, argument about um, about control and and maybe raise some some questions about whether you know X community should be paying or subsidizing you know Y community. But but the the argument has really changed over, and especially you know post uh, post COVID when we are trying to um, find workers for for all of our businesses. Um, you know the, the the conversation and the tone has changed a little bit more to to focus on how can we do it, what's the best way to do it, and and again. Nancy had mentioned uh, quality of life issues, and and as we're seeing uh, in polls throughout this election cycle, um, infrastructure and investing in infrastructure isn't is an issue. It's it's you know maybe not at the the top of the list, but it is certainly one that voters um, are paying attention to. And so you know something like this millage certainly strikes that balance right there. Yeah, uh, Nancy, I want to talk about the congressional races uh, in in Oakland County. There are two technically, but one is really uh, Oakland County. And of course, that's incumbent Haley Stevens in the 11th uh, district. Um, Talk about uh, that race. Um, Republican Mark Ambrose of Bloomfield Township is running against her. Uh, He has uh, a military record that he is is touting. He wants to lower 
taxes, but does he have much of a chance against uh, Haley Stevens, who, when she first ran for Congress, was seen as a real long shot? Again, the, the, the change and the kind of trend toward Democratic strength is, is really obvious in, in that race, too. Well, I see Congresswoman Stevens uh, as a worker. Uh, she works for her her constituents, and um, she uh, spends a lot of time in the district. Uh, I happen to live in her old district, um, uh, her old uh, Oakland County, mm-hmm. uh, excuse me, Congressional District uh, 11, and it's nothing to run into her anywhere. Um, I see her assets as she listens to her constituency uh, through town halls, uh, audio town halls, uh, appearing uh, she appears to be in the district uh, all weekends or times that she's not in, in Congress. She's actively working with her district. Um, it's going to be very difficult, in, from my perspective, for her n- not to move ahead in her next term because she makes herself available. She makes herself available to everyone that lives in her district. So, And I have great appreciations for her. Mm. Uh, Dennis, as I said, when Haley Stevens ran uh, the first time, she was seen as a long shot because she was a Democrat. Now it seems uh, because of the way the district has been drawn and, again, the changes in Oakland County, she's a favorite uh, and she's an incumbent. Yeah, and she, she certainly in her first term, um, you know, showed that she has, uh, you know, what you would call an independent streak. Obviously, um, you know, kudos goes out to her campaign for consistently driving home the message that uh, she was chief of staff to Obama's auto rescue uh, rescue plan. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we've been hearing that for <laughs> for a very long time now. Um, but again, that's the type of issue that appeals to uh, voters on both sides of the aisle. It's not just directed towards uh, Democrats. Um, and again, her time in in Congress, uh, she's shown that um, you know she's willing to uh, maybe take a more more moderate approach or a more uh, moderate position than than some of the more um, uh, well known or, or, or maybe publicized uh, you know House Democrats. So in a district like this, and and, and certainly in her new congressional district, uh, she is favored because she isn't seen as someone that you could tie to House leadership. Um, at the national level, um, and and as one who you know who who fights for for both uh, sides of of her constituency. Yeah, uh, Nancy Quarles, uh, I want to thank you for being here. I know you have uh, an appointment that you want to run to, and so I want to make sure uh, we're respectful of your time. But we really do appreciate you being here with us on uh, Detroit Today, and we'll have you back. Okay, thank you, and yeah. have a good one. Yeah. Okay, we're going to continue the conversation with Dennis Darnoy, and we want to start to hear from you, our listeners. If you live in Oakland County, tell me what races have you worked up uh, in advance of the November 8th uh, balloting? What are you thinking about the transit millage? What are you thinking about the congressional races? We're going to talk in a little bit about the legislative races in Oakland County. Uh, Give us a call on the phones, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the program that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Just a few weeks left before November 8th, 2022, when we will go to the ballot for midterm elections and make a lot of choices locally as well. Today, we are talking about the choices that voters face in Oakland County, uh, a place where things are changing, where demographics look really different than they did five or 10 or 50 years ago, and where the politics look different. Uh, Democrats in the county have more say and more control over what happens than they ever have before. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Call and tell us what you're thinking about uh, what's going on in Oakland County, the choices that voters have there. Is there a race that you're focused on? Is the transit millage something that you're really giving a lot of thought to. You have legislative races and congressional races uh, in the county, and then, of course, uh, there's also the county commission race. Uh, We want to hear what is uh, on your mind in advance of the balloting on November 8th. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can try to include you in the conversation that way. Big Neo on Twitter says, I'm no longer in Oakland County, but I have to hope that the party that refuses to help Poor kids have free lunch at school would not be elected. Republicans do not care about children after they are born. Uh, Let's go to the phones. Tim in Franklin. Tim, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for getting me on. Sure. Um, You're asking what elections in Oakland County am am I into? I'm into all of them. (laughs) I'm an election inspector in Pontiac. I just voted this morning in Oakland Township, which uh-huh. is where I vote. And in, in Pontiac, we are having problems getting Republican workers to work the election. It's, um, I, I'm putting the plea out yeah. for us to get Republicans that want to ensure fairness and the workforce that is tabulating the votes and checking the IDs and to um, get out and uh, sign up to work the election. I've been to the Oakland County Republican headquarters twice. I left a flyer there each time and was given a number to contact. um, And I ended up this morning going down to the Pontiac City Hall clerk's office and asked, have you heard from anyone from the Oakland County Republican Party? And she says, not yet. I said, okay, can I take some applications to be a poll worker down there to have them sit in their office? And she said, thank you. Hmm. So there's going to be applications to vote down there. Uh, the two times I've been there, I see lots of people getting lawn signs, which is good. Um, but you need poll workers, too. Right. Uh, no, no question. Um, Tim, really appreciate the call and the call out. Uh, um there is a difference, of course, between poll workers and poll watchers. I'm not quite sure which um, you are which you are calling for, but uh, but yes, people should be involved 
in local uh, in local elections. I, I wonder, Dennis, is there a problem getting Republicans, given the shift in demographics and the dwindling number of Republicans, I guess, uh, that, that exist in Oakland County? Are, is this a problem maybe countywide that uh, getting the requisite number of, uh, of poll workers, for instance, is a problem? Well, I don't think it's an issue countywide, but obviously, like, uh, you know, for example, an area like Pontiac, uh, the truth of the matter is there aren't that many Republican voters in, in Pontiac. Mm-hmm. Um, and so traditionally what you see is is having, you know, poll watchers and, and poll workers for, you know, it, it involved in, in the community in which they're they're participating. So uh, it, the, the pool of, uh, of uh, potential uh, workers in, in Pontiac is obviously a lot smaller than it would be, let's say, in Oxford or even Waterford or, or an area like that. So uh, it really is uh, dependent upon the community, but uh, it's it's true. Everyone needs to, to get involved and, and help make sure that, uh, you know, the elections are are run properly. And, and you know, we haven't had an issue with that in, in Michigan, and, and hopefully we will not this time either. Yeah, yeah. And Tim mentioned checking IDs. We should be clear that uh, they do try to check your ID at uh, the polls, and, and if you have ID, you can show it. But even if you don't have ID, you are still allowed to cast your vote uh, here in Michigan. Okay, I want to talk uh, a little more about the races uh, in in Oakland County. Dennis, let's talk about the county commission, which has a majority of Democrats right now. It's one of the reasons that that transit millage is uh, is on the ballot. Uh, tell me about the races, though. Uh, for county commission and whether there might be change. Yeah, so again, we, that that's an area where we used to see, um, you know, Republican dominance, and then uh, it, it changed, and and it was uh, a very narrow majority, and now, of course, it's uh, it's a Democratic majority. Uh, the races, you know, throughout the uh, throughout Oakland County, um, again, the areas to watch. I mean, he, there's going to be some some races here in in the the Novi Farmington Hills area where some of the districts. Um, are mathematically uh, competitive, I, I think, depending on uh, what the environment is, um, uh, you know, from the top of the ticket. And again, depending on what congressional district you live in, um, and, and it's Senate district and House district, there's going to be some areas that are are going to be, you know, very well contested. Um, and one of the things that we've been tracking and seeing is uh, absentee ballots here in Oakland County. Mm. Um, there has been a lot of new, um, relatively high number of new absentee ballot voters. Uh, they are um, uh, younger voters than, than what are traditional absentee ballot voters, um, and more of um, more females than males at this point in time. So I, I think those are kind of uh, you know trends that, that we're watching to see how they might influence some of these races. Yeah. Um, what about the legislature in Oakland County? Uh, we have. Not uh, we have a really different map, of course, uh, there. And the primary concern that I've heard from people is the extent to which districts straddle uh, Oakland County and other jurisdictions, <coughs> namely, namely uh, Detroit. Uh, but there are a number of House and Senate races in the county. Some look like they're going to be blowouts. For instance, uh, Mallory McMorrow running uh, to retain her seat in the state Senate in the 13th district. But uh, but talk about some of the races that might be a little closer. 
Absolutely. And I, I know that, you know, we had talked briefly about or we had talked about the, the Haley Stevens race. <clears throat> but I'd like to point out that um, even though it's literally two communities, uh, the, the, the congressional race in, in CD10, which is predominantly Macomb. Yeah. Um, Rochester going Hills to be, is uh, right. part of that, right? Right. And, and that's going to be an incredibly important race from the standpoint of turnout, because um, encompassed in uh, Michigan 10 is also Senate District 9, which is uh, Padma versus uh, Michael Weber, which is going to be one of the six seats that determines control of the state Senate. You three, you have three House districts, uh, 54, 55, and 56, um, which two of them are marginal Republican seats. Uh, 56 is, is more dim-leaning, which will have a huge impact on uh, who controls the, the Michigan House. So again, though that, that area, Oakland, Rochester, Rochester Hills, Troy, and a bit of Clawson, are going to have a, a huge impact on the, the, the shape of the state legislature. Um, and so if Michigan 10 happens to be a very competitive race, then that obviously will, you know, impact turnout in those seats. Um, if for, you know, some reason it becomes, uh, you know, favors one party over the other, again, there is going to be that 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 issue in, in those districts. And um, even though it's not uh, in Oakland County, um, Senate District 11 and 12 which are in Macomb County, which you know borders Senate District Nine. Again, there's six seats that are going to determine the the control of the the state Senate, and we have three of them uh, really, really close to us. So uh, those are the races that that are are you know drawing the most attention. There is a, a House seat; um, it's a House District 21 over in the Novi side um, that also is going to have. Uh, you know, some influence. And again, what we're talking about is we're talking about areas that used to be reliably Republican, where you could get, um, you know, very solid margins of victory um, that have now become more competitive and in any given cycle could go for either party. Yeah. Uh, talk about the influence of former President Donald Trump and his support or his lack of support for, for candidates in Oakland County and and how his support plays, uh, even in races where he's not present, uh, that, that this influence that he has over over the party, the, the number of candidates who feel some pressure, I guess, to to weigh in about how they feel about him. What's that going to look like this November? Well, obviously, you know, Donald Trump had a huge influence on the primary cycle. Um, and, and, you know, the candidates who were successful were those who um, campaigned um, either, you know, as being Trump supporters or embraced his uh, the issues that, that he raised and the concerns that that he raised. Um, when you get into, you know, competitive districts where, you know, one party or the other is favored maybe by one or two points, obviously, uh, you know, it's only talking about a primary message is, is not necessarily the, the way that you're going to, you know, you're going to win. Um, so these candidates have to, you know, toe the line in, in the sense of, 
they, they've still Republicans, and, and as of now, he's still the, the head of the Republican Party. But I think, you know, again, going back to to the phrase that, that Nancy Quarles used, you really do have to talk about the quality of life issues, and, and that is inflation, that's cost of living, that's education, that's economy, that's infrastructure. Um, so the candidates who are going to be successful are going to to explain, you know, how they are going to, to, to help their local community on those issues. And those are the issues that are, are really bread and butter, uh, the ones that are, are close to home, the ones that you feel every day. Um, you know, so someone going into Meyer and, and, and seeing the increase in prices, someone going to the, the gas pump um, and seeing the increase uh, of prices, uh, some issues within um, education that, that are on voters' minds. I think those Republican candidates that are speaking more to those issues, instead of maybe relitigating uh, some some past issues, um, are, are going to be the ones that, that are going to be successful. And honestly, they also have to hope that, um, you know, what we see in the debate tonight and, and, and you know, some suggestions at the polls are closing at the at the gubernatorial level mm-hmm. um, are true, because if, if, uh, if the race at the top of the ticket isn't competitive, it makes these down ballot races, uh, you know, a little bit uh, harder to win. And the last thing I'd say on, on this issue is we also have to look at um, what straight party ticket voting is going to be um, in Oakland County. Um, you know, Dems uh, usually uh, outnumber uh, Republicans when they, when they you know, vote straight party ticket. Um, and so then, again, what you're really appealing to is, is ticket splitters and maybe some uh, Republican leaning um uh, voters who who maybe have fallen out of uh out of love with some of the candidates but certainly do not embrace the democratic party or the democratic party message so do, you know it does look like turnout is going to be um very high very robust which is always a good thing and and these candidates have to speak to those those middle voters what we call the purple voters yeah uh, before we end i want to talk a little about the proposals the statewide proposals we have 3 on the ballot, uh, I assume that uh, that Oakland County will look um, very democratic in that way as well. Prop three, in particular, I think is a is a hot button issue with with abortion. Uh, but talk about these proposals and and how we see Oakland County coming down on them. Yeah, I mean, so obviously Prop 3 is the one that's received the most attention um, nationally, statewide, countywide. Um, and even though it's Prop 3, it's probably going to to drive, um, you know, voters and grab voters' interests, uh, you know, over Prop 1 and Prop 2, uh, which are, are term limits and, and voting rights. And, and I think, um, again, looking at how the county has gone in the past um, and how they voted in the past, one would suspect that... Um, um, those the three proposals would would pass in this county. Um, again, you know the term limits one. There are some issues with it, but the uh, the concerns probably don't outweigh the benefits. Um, and then voting rights. If you look at you know how we even got to an independent commission uh, and the support that Oakland County gave for uh, previous um, uh, initiatives on voting rights, you would have to suggest that um, you know Prop Two is in a good position as well. So again, all the attention, all the money will will go into Prop Three, um, but the but the other two proposals, uh, you know, will have a, a an equal impact on on state government and uh, not necessarily just uh, personal lives. Okay, all right, uh, Dennis Darnoy, Republican political consultant, always great to have you here with us on Detroit today. Thanks for coming by to talk about the upcoming elections. Thank you very much for having me, Stephen. Have a great day. 
All right, when we come back, we are going to switch subjects a little bit. We're going to meet the new president of University of Detroit Mercy. Donald Taylor joins us next. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Universities are important spaces for learning and social development. That much we all kind of agree on. But universities have also been and continue to be enormous hubs of innovation and research and entrepreneurship. And of course, they are residents. They are citizens of the cities that they occupy. Both Michigan in general and Detroit in particular have really great universities, and many people have associated Wayne State with the city of Detroit, but we have another premier university here as well, University of Detroit Mercy, which plays a crucial role in the city's development, research, and its political evolution. It's a space for learning and innovation in northwest Detroit and in other parts of the city. And the university now officially has a new president, Donald Taylor. We have invited President Taylor onto the program to talk about why he wanted to fill the position, what he hopes to accomplish while he's there, and what he thinks the university's role should be here in the city of Detroit. President Donald Taylor, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. How are you? And just call me Don. Yeah, I absolutely will. It's great to have you here. So let's start with this. Uh, tell us a little about yourself and why you wanted to fill this position at the uh, U of D Mercy. Sure, uh, Stephen. So, you know, this is my 31st year in uh, Catholic higher education. Spent 23 years in Chicago uh, with uh, the Benedictines, a very entrepreneurial, innovative university. We actually uh, built the first Catholic uh, university in the state of Arizona, uh, Benedictine and Mesa. Then I left and I was president at Cabrini University in, on the main line in Philadelphia the last eight years. Had the opportunity to return uh, to the Midwest. I knew a lot about the uh, Detroit Mercy because when I was dean of the sciences at Benedictine Chicago, we would send graduates to the dental school here in Corktown. We had a program with the engineering school. Um, and I had a faculty colleague who's, who was a University of Detroit alum who always talked about what just an outstanding Jesuit liberal arts education that she had received from Detroit Mercy. And uh, when I started looking for my next presidency, I knew I wanted it to be a major comprehensive university that was in a major, you know, I, I would consider metropolitan Midwest capital type uh, city. And also what was really attractive was I think under the leadership of Dr. Garibaldi the last decade, the university is really poised, I felt, to make a quantum leap. And, um, and you know, being able to succeed Antoine and all the work he did in the community and really moving the university forward, you know, uh, many organizations, you have a short window of when you have momentum to really take the next major 
step forward or leap uh, in that institution's history. And I think everything is here in place. Detroit Mercy, I just uh, passed my, my day 100 um, on the job, the response, the sense of hospitality and welcoming of the entire community from our faculty, staff, students, trustees, our 90,000 alumni, and then influencers throughout the region has just been uh, phenomenal. So uh, we couldn't be uh, more pleased to be here. Uh, and also on a personal level, my wife and I are both first-gen students, first members of our families to go to college. Mm-hmm. Our, our Three of our four parents didn't even go to high school. So we really know that transformational value of education. My wife has family in Michigan. And as I said, I've got family south of Chicago. And just being back in this region where there's so many exciting things going on uh, in the in the city, we we just couldn't be uh, more pleased to be here and uh, are fortunate to have this role at this particular uh, inst- uh, instance in the uh, institution's history. Yeah, I, I I wonder if you can talk more about that connection between U of D Mercy and folks here in the city. Uh, the the fact that uh, you were a first generation college student, think of the number of people here in, in the city of Detroit who are still waiting for that kind of, yeah. of opportunity. That's always been a challenge here in yeah. the city is, is making sure that there's opportunity. Uh, what does that look like at UD Mercy? Yeah, it's great. You know, the, the McNichols campus in, in northwest part of the city, you know, as you know, is the campus that the Jesuits founded 145 years ago. And this campus will always be a campus of opportunity for diverse students that are working to advance, you know, their family streams. About a third of our uh, uh, undergrad students are first generation, uh, similar to me. So we and my wife, we feel like we really have a connection with them. And and you know, we we look at the educational opportunities for the students here. You know, most of our majors have either a co-op or an internship or. A, capstone field, you know, clinical experience required. So it provides an opportunity really as a pathway for upward social and economic mobility. And uh, in the latest U.S. News World uh, Report rankings, uh, you know, we were in the top, you know, 120 or so out of the 5,200 campuses in the country for upward kind of social economic mobility. And so that's a key for us. You know, we have tremendous diversity. Uh, When I was uh, lining up the 500 and plus new freshmen doing our procession in for the opening of the of the school year I was walking and uh, my campuses in Chicago and Philly had tremendous diversity half the students were students of color first gen and a large international populations I see the same thing here so it's just it's a great opportunity a melting pot where we bring students from different uh, backgrounds I'm actually going out in the community visiting different schools actually right after this um, interview Stephen I'm the dean of the of our school of engineering and science we're going to visit Keys Grace Academy and I'm visiting different schools throughout uh, the city of Detroit kind of introducing us, reintroducing us, talking about the kinds of partnerships that we could have with those schools to support, um, you know, their their, uh, students. And, you know, the university, I think, as you mentioned, along with Wayne State, you know, we're the city's universities. We want to be at the table. We want to be a major player in innovation, technology, uh, you know, whether it's community health, but community engagement. So one of the things I said to faculty and staff and and the board during the interview process and our opening convocation is Detroit Mercy has to serve 
our local and then our regional community. They've been doing that. You're, you know, you're aware, Dr. Garibaldi, the phenomenal community development work they've done with Live Six. But we can do more, and we want to do more. You know, we our dental school and dental clinic is in Corktown. We're looking to expand that. Our law school is downtown, and we have the right. Um, faculty research and faculty student research types of projects and innovation in within our seven schools and colleges. You know, this is a technology rich region. So whether it's automotive, you know, we've got strong work and centers in cyber, in robotics, in autonomous driving vehicles. We've got people doing work in drone technology, but also in biotech green community health. We can be a big player in that. I've been meeting with CEOs of major health systems. I'm a biomedical scientist. My wife's a, a nurse. And so, you know, we have a phenomenal uh, nursing programs from the entry level all the way up to the doctoral level. We just celebrated our 50th anniversary of the physician assistance program. It was one of the first PA programs um, in the country. And there are other um, allied health programs that we're going to be launching. So we want to be a key player and really focus the way the dental school and nursing does on uh, community-based health. And finally, our School of Architecture and Design, you know, has done unbelievable work partnering with Kresge for, for many, many years, working initially Live 6, but the design center through our School of Architecture is, works with many neighborhoods throughout the city of Detroit, um, you know, a community-based design uh, project. Mm -hmm. And we're really trying to mobilize, you know, our faculty and our staff to really think, you know, deeply and strategically around how we can enhance our community-based research and really have that, you know, be a cornerstone of the university moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, we're talking with uh, Don Taylor. He is the new president of University of Detroit Mercy. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Are you a student or a parent of a student at the U of D Mercy? Did you go to college there? Uh, what do you make of the school and its direction, its important place here in the city of Detroit? What do you think it's doing well? What do you think it can do better? Also, if you just have questions for the new leader of U of D Mercy. Uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Don, I'm going to put you on the spot just a little bit here sure. uh, with a pet peeve of mine. Yep. The fence around the, the six-mile oh. campus. Oh, heard, oh, <laughs> I know it's a sensitive a issue, but in the, in the first hundred days, it yeah. just it just projects an image and a dynamic that I think is contrary to everything you were just talking about. All the ways that the university is really trying to to be a you know a productive part of the community and connect with the community, and then there's this fence around the whole thing. Yeah, and so again, you know, I'm uh, as I said, just past day 100, and um, <laughs> you haven't gotten I, to that quite yet. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. But but what I can tell you, know, I've been on a listening tour, so I'm I'm listening to you know alumni groups and faculty and staff and students and different neighborhood groups. I'm you know I'm actually going to speak to the university district community. There's 1,400 homes, right? I, we live in the university district, so there are neighbors mm -hmm. and engaged there, and and around how we can do more. 
and be, you know, a better neighbor and partner with them. I, I would say we do have an open campus in the sense that, look, there's one uh, ingress in and one egress out. Uh, but people are allowed to get guest passes. We, for the first time in since the late 60s, after they, uh, the U of D tore down the football stadium where the Lions used to play Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. you know, on U of D's campus, you know, we had Loyola High School come and play Friday night under the lights, you know, on our turf field. We welcomed hundreds and hundreds of people from the neighborhood, all came in, had a great time on those Friday uh, uh, evenings, you, you know, with um, c- coming out. And, um, again, you know, I, we have to look at ways. I think there are ways, you know, we can soften that, uh, et, et cetera, to do that. But at the same time, you know, as a university, um, you know, we're, we listen to we listen to parents of our students. You know, we listen to um, both local as well as out-of-state uh, students who come to live on the McNichols campus as well as international students. And, you know, again, there are, and some of them might be stereotypes, but there are concerns that, you know, parents have. And, um, and so they want to make sure that their child, when they drop them off, is safe. And I'm not saying the fence is the only way that you, you know, demonstrate your commitment to safety of the people who live on our campus and who work here. We have a phenomenal public safety and a security force on camp on campus. You know, we have cameras, et cetera. And if you go to the Department of Education um, stats where they where all universities are required to upload, you know, their crime statistics, we have extremely low uh, crime rate, and in fact, if you look at uh, us in relation to being an urban university compared to, I just came from Philly, Temple mm-hmm. on the northeast side. My son was a student at Temple, you know, massive. They had probably five times the number of public safety law enforcement, and I'm not throwing shade on Temple, but my son went there, and I'm just saying that there were there was violent crime every week, you know, that touched mm-hmm. uh, came close to their their campus. Or look at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, University of Southern California in uh, L.A. And so we're not really much different from those others, except they tend to have a lot larger police presence, uh, you know, than we do. Uh, but, again, we, we're, we try to do everything we can to demonstrate hospitality, and we welcome groups and invite people coming in to theater, productions, arts, sports, all kinds of things. So we don't, we're not turn people away. We're just saying that you need to come in one way. And, in fact, I would say uh, look what's happened in society, and basically if, if I want to go – see a politician or I want to go to the courthouse or, or any other federal building, right, or at the airports, we have to go through, right, and be scanned. That's something that we um, accept on a daily basis uh, simply because it's those are, systems have been put in place, you know, to protect us. Um, so, again, I, I'm new to this. I've heard in all my list, all these listening sessions I'm doing, uh, usually at least one person in the audience brings up the fence, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and so, and I don't know all the history. Yeah, I think uh, I mean about I, that you know. So but, I think one again, of the things but, that's true is that is that, I mean, and look, security is a concern for everybody who lives in the city. I live in the city, and and I want to make sure that, uh, that I'm safe too. But one of the things that I found is that by lowering barriers, obvious signs of keep out. 
um, it makes people feel more a part of things. And they they tend then to feel like they want to watch over it too. Um, and, and so, I don't know, uh, if you got rid of the fence, maybe, um, maybe you'd have less of a problem to begin with. I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to run the university obviously. And, and you've got a lot of interest to balance there, but, uh, yeah. but that's just been my experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, well, I, what I will say, I've always, uh, uh, no matter what, component it was of the educational system or pathways just because of, again, given my wife and my background, it's a miracle, you know, that we're here and doing what we're doing given the background that we came from. And um, yeah. and so I've always intentionally tried to create educational pathways and remove as many barriers uh, to that. So I'm always open to having the dialogue and and, discu- and discussion, but I don't. I haven't been here long enough. I haven't studied it long enough yet, you know, to, to you know have a uh, you know a, a decision at this yeah. point. Yeah, no, no, I, I get I, it. I just, I just, Hundred I days all, is I hear pretty it on short. Every right? side, right? I hear it on every <laughs> side. When parents come to campus, I hear one side. Yeah, you know, with the mayor's yeah. office calls, I hear a different side, right? right. And and then literally all. Everything in between. So I, I think, you know, we can certainly, uh, and we are engaging with the community around discussions, and that will be part of them. But, but one of the things that we're also doing is uh, um, as we bring um, students in groups and parents, buses, we want to not only after we show them the campus, but we want to take them up and drive them and show them uh, the amazing work that's been done and done in Live Six from Liberal North from Six Mile to Eight Mile. We sure. want to drive them it's through a different place University it used District. To be. Totally yeah. different, right? Yeah. Hey, 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 I want to quick. Them. We're going to run out of time, but I want to yeah. quickly take a, yeah. a phone call here. Denise sure. in Franklin. Uh, we've got about a minute left, but but go yeah. ahead, Denise. Are you there, Denise? Yes. Hi, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'd like to ask your guest what has been his experience over the years and what are his plans in regard to helping make sure that students that start at U of D Mercy are able to complete yeah. their college. Great, great in, question, within Denise. Within four to six years. Yeah, great yeah. question, Denise. Uh, Don, we've got a minute, a minute left, but, but sure. address that. Yeah. yeah, great question, Denise. And, uh, uh, we're totally committed to making sure you, it, you can't just have an access agenda and say you want to bring in first-generation students and students from diverse backgrounds if you don't have a completion agenda, which is the question Denise is asking. So, I mean, we do we try to do everything we can and really looking at the total education of the student, educating them holistically, and making sure we have the necessary support systems and the wraparound from campus ministry through robust student services, through, you know, a, a really intentional advising system. You know, our retention's really good just com- coming out of COVID. Uh, you know, we 86% of the new uh, students from a year ago returned this year. That's a very high statistic. You know, our graduation rate is in the low 70s. We can always do um, better. And uh, and again, the university is is committed to that. I'm committed everywhere I've been, and uh, my last four campuses. Yeah. 
um, you know, we were really committed to putting everything in place that we could to make sure that we we uh, had a robust completion agenda yeah. and our students were graduating and graduating with as low a debt as we could. So making sure we have additional scholarships, yeah. scholarships when a kid has to stop out to help them stay right. in, okay. all those kinds of we, things. We, we're, we're, gonna, we're running out of time. So, Don, I, I really appreciate you being here. Welcome to Detroit. We look forward Great, to thanks. And yeah, what you're going to do back, at the campus. Steve, anytime, okay? Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when one of my favorite people is going to join us. Des Cooper is going to talk about her new book, Nothing Special. It's a kid's book about the beauty of intergenerational connection. This is 1019 WDETFM.